Let's pray before we look at this passage. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou didst break the bread beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit longs for thee, thou living word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, if you were here last week when we looked at the story about um, Elisha and the, uh, the Arameans trying to catch him and the, the, the army um, trying to surround Dothan where he was, uh, you'll remember that we talked about the comic elements of the Bible and the comic elements of that passage in particular. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, comedy gives way to unspeakable horror. The context, we've, we've the story we've just read, we're actually going to look at um, not only this part of chapter 6, we're going to glance on into chapter 7 as well, but we've just read the last part of chapter 6. Uh, and the context is that there's been a, a short period of peace or relative peace between Israel and um, Aram. Um, but after that, at some point, the Aramean king, Ben-Hadad, uh, mustered his entire army, it says in my Bible, mustered his entire army and he marched on the Israelite capital, Samaria. Now this is a much more organized, serious, all-out assault than those random skirmishes and raids that we were thinking about last week. This is a serious attack. And when the Arameans reach Samaria, they lay siege to it. Now in the ancient world, to live through siege was to endure a living nightmare. The horror of it was, was truly unspeakable. Um, obviously, the food and water would steadily run out. Disease would spread among the people. And added to that, there was also the, the psychological stress of seeing and hearing the enemy army surrounding you. You'd see them at, during the day, you'd hear them at night. And there was this growing sense of inevitability that eventually the city would collapse and the dread of what would happen thereafter. Somebody's commented that in that kind of situation, when the walls collapsed, the whole of normal life collapsed and the most awful atrocities would take place. Normally in a battle in the ancient Near East, Near Eastern world, it was man to man out on the field. But if you were in a besieged city, when the army eventually came in, uh, if we can say this, all hell would be let loose and women and children would be raped and killed uh, along with everybody else. The only hope you had if your city was besieged um, was that another city would come to your aid. Another country would come and relieve the, relieve the siege and, and, and help you that way. That was the only possible um, hope you had. And that is the situation that is described in these verses um, that we've just read. That's the situation in Samaria uh, during this siege. The price of food rocketed, um, even of the most repugnant items, a donkey's head, um, the most unclean thing. Um, it, 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 the price of a donkey's head rocketed. Verse 25, 
uh, in the NIV, it talks about the price of seed pods. That's a bad translation. Uh, the Hebrew word means pigeon crap. That's what it means. NIV is a bit of a, a euphemism. Um, either for eating or for using as fuel. Uh, and then we have this horrific account of two mothers who in their desperation resort to cannibalism and they agree to eat their own children. Whether the children were already dead or not, we don't know. Uh, they cook and eat one of them, but then the second mother reneges on the pact and so the first mother appeals to the king to intervene, verse 26. Uh, help my lord, my, the king, she says, but you need to know that that word help is the same as the word that means save in Hebrew. And what she says is, save my lord, the king. And in Jehoram's initial answer is a little bit cryptic. If the Lord does not save you, how can I save you? Same word again. If the Lord does not save you, how can I save you? Uh, and then we get this cryptic little remark from the threshing floor or from the wine press. The point is that in the Old Testament, uh, a full threshing floor and a full wine press were a kind of shorthand for national prosperity. Uh, when times were good in Israel, uh, when, when the economy was doing well, this was a kind of shorthand, like, like a land flowing with milk and honey, full threshing floor, full wine press. That's a kind of shorthand for, for prosperity and for God's blessing. And so what the king is doing here is just being heavily sarcastic. Where would you like me to get help from? Shall I get it from the empty threshing floor or shall I get it from the empty wine press? It's dark humor for a dark time. Uh, and then the king relents and softens a little bit and he asks the woman to tell him what has happened and she tells him the grim story. That's the, um, that's the passage, that's the background to, to what we're going to think about today, a, a, uh, a human horror story um, in, in, in ancient Israel. What do we learn from it? And I want to emphasize that actually the, the focal point comes at the at the end of, um, or in verse 31 in chapter 6, uh, in Jehoram's response, and then in Elisha's response at the ch start of chapter 7. Um, Jehoram's response, when he hears this story about cannibalism, he tears his sackcloth and he said, so may God do to me and more, may God deal with me ever so severely if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, stays on his shoulders today. And what I want to highlight here is the danger, the risk of misinterpreting trouble. The danger of misinterpreting trouble and disaster. Now Jehoram, King Jehoram, is a very, very mixed bag. Um, at times, his spiritual antennae do seem to be pointing in the right direction. Uh, and we noticed in verse 26 that um, when he tore his clothes, all the people could see that he was wearing sackcloth underneath. That's good. Um, sackcloth, wearing sackcloth in ancient Israel was a mark of humility before God. There are just little indications that Jehoram sometimes gets it right. He seems to have some glimmer of understanding of God, some kind of faith in God, but it's heavily, heavily compromised. And when he hears this woman's story, Jehoram 
disastrously misinterprets the cause of the trouble. Jehoram disastrously misinterprets the cause of the problem. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha remains on his shoulders today. Just as a few years earlier, um, Jehoram's father Ahab had seen Elijah as responsible for the famine. Do you remember that story back in 1 Kings chapter 18 when there's famine in the land? And uh, Ahab's walking along and he bumps into Elijah. And he says, ah, it's you, you troubler of Israel. And Elijah, of course, turns it back on him and says, you're talking about yourself. That's exactly what Ahab did. Misinterprets the disaster. There's a disaster. There's famine. It must be Elijah. It must be that troublesome man of God. He's done it. Jehoram does exactly the same thing. When he hears this horrific story of cannibalism, must be Elisha. He's got to die. And so Jehoram sees Elisha as somehow responsible for this siege. Maybe, maybe because if you were here last week, you'll remember the story, Elisha had squandered that golden opportunity to put the Aramean army to death. There was that time a little while earlier when he had them in the city. They were at the mercy of the king of Israel. And there was the king of Israel jumping up and down. Shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And Elisha said no. And he squandered that golden opportunity to kill the Aramean army. Ah, Elisha, it's your fault. And so Jehoram vows to put Elisha to death. Oh, the irony of that. What does Elisha's name mean? It means God saves. God saves. The woman had cried out to the king, save, O Lord, the king. And the king had replied, if the Lord does not save you, how can I save you? And what does he proceed to do? End the life of the man whose name means God saves. And it's Elisha, or through Elisha, that Jehoram and others have experienced God's salvation already several times. They know it's Elisha who is the man of God. They know it's Elisha who brings life. They know it's Elisha who brings God's word of truth. And in spite of hearing God's word through Elisha and knowing that, God, that Elisha is God's representative and God's prophet, when he is faced with the biggest crisis of his reign, Jehoram makes the wrong call. And Jehoram decides that God's prophet is the problem and resolves to kill him. Amazing who people will blame when they're faced with trouble. Amazing how people will sometimes blame the church for all kinds of things. It's remarkable, really, because we're always being told that the church has no authority and no influence left in society, and yet sometimes when things go wrong, people blame the church. People make the wrong call, and especially in times of trouble, they make the wrong call and blame the wrong person. But not only does Jehoram blame Elisha, more importantly, he blames and gives up on the God that Elisha serves. See what he says in, in verse 33. This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I hope in the Lord any longer? Now, the first sentence there is, in a sense, profoundly correct. Jehoram gets it kind of right there. This trouble is from the Lord. 
Now, in one sense, he's right, because since God is sovereign, nothing happens except by his permission. He's absolutely right about that. And that's why in the Old Testament, the psalmists and the prophets regularly and boldly and daringly attribute their sufferings to God. You get it in the Psalms all the time. Lord, why have you done this to me? The Lord has brought trouble upon me. The Lord has brought disaster upon me. Job says it. To say that by itself is, is in one sense perfectly correct. And when you're in trouble and distress, that's the right thing to say. In one sense, Jehoram is right. This trouble is from the Lord. But there is a huge difference between saying, God, you've brought this trouble and it makes no sense. But I will keep on calling upon you until you hear me. I will keep on calling on you until you do something. There's a huge difference between that and saying, God, you've brought this trouble and it makes no sense, so I'm through with you. There is a chasm of difference between that. Jehoram almost gets it right, but he gets it completely wrong. Right at this most extreme crisis of his faith, Jehoram says, this trouble is from the Lord. I I've had it. Why continue to hope in the Lord any longer? But you see in the Bible that the hallmark of true faith is the willingness to hold on when nothing makes sense. It's the willingness to hold on where there is no light. And that is why uh, you see this in the Psalms again and again. You see it in the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 7, verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Or even more clearly in the prophet Habakkuk, when Habakkuk was faced with the prospect of imminent invasion by, by, by the Babylonians and the com complete collapse of his own country. And in those memorable words at the end of the book of Habakkuk the prophet says though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will exalt in the God of my salvation and that is what the Bible means by faith when there is no sign to encourage you when there is no glimmer of hope that determination to hope against all apparent hope and to hold on to God and to say, though there is nothing that I can see that would encourage me, yet I will hold on to the Lord and I will rejoice in the Lord, the God of my salvation. The danger of misinterpreting trouble, the danger of misreading disaster, uh, it Jehoram makes the wrong call and gets it completely wrong. That's really the, the, the lesson that we learn from the passage that we've read, the end of chapter 6. What about chapter 7? This is what we haven't read. But chapter 7, if you like, is the opposite. Chapter 7 is about the danger of misinterpreting salvation. So we've had the danger of misinterpreting disaster. Chapter 7, the danger of misinterpreting salvation. Because into this context of death and hostility and disbelief, Elisha, chapter 7, verse 1, Elisha announces what seems to be an utterly impossible 
promise of hope. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a measure of choice meal shall be sold for a shekel, nothing. Two measures of barley for a shekel, nothing. Within the next 24 hours, the situation inside Samaria is going to be transformed so dramatically that the price of food is going to come tumbling. And the captain of whose hand the king leaned, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, even if the Lord were to make windows in the sky, could such a thing happen? But that's Elisha's promise. That's Elisha's word from God. Elisha doesn't say how it's going to happen. Maybe Elisha doesn't know. And in fact, the, the, the amazing thing about the story that we read in chapter 7 is that no one in the story ever does find out exactly what happens. No one in the story knows how God does this because the miracle that changes everything takes place at night outside the city and no one knows about it. And the storyteller just sneaks it in in the middle of the chapter. Chapter 7, verse 6. Here it is. Chapter 7, verse 6. For the Lord caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, the king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to fight against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents. That's what happens in the middle of the night outside the city. God supernaturally dramatically causes the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and the sound of horses and they flee. Nobody knows what's happened. Nobody inside Samaria knows. Elisha doesn't know and only the reader knows. And the irony of this story in chapter 7 is that in one way or another all the parties, all the actors misunderstand and misinterpret God's work of salvation. They all benefit from it. None of them understand what's happened. So, for example, first of all, there are the, the four lepers that we read about, starting in verse 3. Four lepers. They decide that the situation's so bad, they might as well surrender to the Arameans. If they die, they die, but they're going to die in the city anyway. So these four lepers um, walk out of Samaria, they walk into the Aramean camp only to find it absolutely deserted. Now, I always used to think that these four lepers were the heroes in the story. I used to think that these four lepers were the uh, a sort of symbol of outcasts who received God's blessing and, and then witnessed to God's blessing. That's what outcasts often do in Scripture. We know that that's a, that's a recurring theme in the Bible. The outcast, the outsider who, who enjoys God's blessing and, and then testifies to it. But if you look more closely at the story, these lepers don't have any more understanding of what God has done than anybody else. So they go into the Aramean camp and they grab some of the food, uh, not surprisingly, and they grab some of the silver and the gold and they hide it. And then they get a bit of uh, a sort of fit of conscience and they think, well, hang on, this isn't right. And if we, if we don't tell anyone, we might be in trouble. And so the lepers go back into the city and they report that the camp is empty. But the lepers don't have any understanding that God has done something. The lepers don't discern God's hand in this extraordinary turn of events. And you see, there's a reminder here that simply being an outcast, simply being poor, 
by itself is no guarantee of spiritual insight. Yes, it's true that very often in Scripture those are the people God chooses to, to bless. But, but simply being poor, simply being um, needy by itself does not guarantee spiritual insight or spiritual responsiveness. Think of that story in the Gospels where Jesus heals ten lepers. How many of them come back and say thank you? One. Uh, these four lepers don't have any spiritual discernment. They misunderstand what's happened. Then there's the explanation given by the Aramean army. Chapter 7, verse 6, end of verse 6. The Arameans hear the sound of the chariots. The Arameans hear the sound of the horses. What do they decide? The king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to fight against us. Now, in principle, that was not an unreasonable conclusion. As I mentioned earlier, if you were a king in the ancient Near Eastern world and your city was besieged, what would you try to do? You'd somehow try to get help from another city. In fact, we read about this later on in the Old Testament when Jerusalem is surrounded by, by the Babylonians and the Egyptians do march out to try to relieve the siege. So the Aramean army's explanation, their interpretation of this sound is perfectly plausible, perfectly reasonable, and completely wrong. They hear the sound, they hear the chariots, they hear the horses, and they make completely the wrong interpretation. They think it's, the, um, it, it's, it, it's another army that's come. Jehoram, King Jehoram, is similar. King Jehoram knows about the true God. He's heard Elisha's prophecy, start of chapter 7, that within 24 hours God will act in power. Jehoram knows something of God. Jehoram's heard what Elisha says. Surely when Jehoram sees what, 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 what change has happened in the city, surely Jehoram will make the connection. But no, the lepers bring word that the Arameans have gone, and Jehoram concludes that it's just a clever trick. The king got up in the night and he said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Arameans have prepared. They know that we're starving, so they've left the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. Now, there are times when it's wise to be cautious. You don't want your leaders to be militarily naive. But there are also times when being cautious and being prudent can blind us to the presence and the working of God. That's the constant danger with wisdom and prudence and safety first instincts. There are many times in life when those instincts are correct and there are many times in life when being cautious is correct. But there are times when those instincts blind you to what God is doing and don't allow you to see the power and the presence and the working of God. And so Jehoram, like the Arameans, also interprets God's action in a way which is absolutely reasonable, absolutely plausible, and completely wrong. You see, the fact is that all God's miracles are like that. All God's miracles can be explained another way, if you want them to be. There's nothing God does in Scripture 
that cannot be explained in another way. There's nothing God does that cannot be interpreted some other way. There's always the possibility of misinterpreting God's work. There's always the possibility of missing what's happened. There's always the possibility, of the, as the Bible says, of seeing and not seeing. Seeing and not understanding. So that you see what God has done and you misinterpret it and you misunderstand it. You see it in the Gospels all the time. Jesus heals a, a sick man. They interpret it some other way. Jesus heals the blind man. They refuse to believe it. He must be making the story up. Jesus is crucified, dead and buried, and he rises from the dead. Oh, they must have stolen the body. You can always interpret God's salvation in some different way if you want to. You can always interpret the miracle in a different way. There's always the danger of misinterpreting God's salvation. And that is deliberate, you see, because God is not going to compel any one of us to believe. God is always going to leave room for you and me to come to a different conclusion. God is never in this life going to force us to our knees and make us believe. There is not going to be a miracle that cannot be explained some other way. If there were, it would not be faith. And so God deliberately chooses to work his acts of salvation in ways that can always be explained differently. The danger of misinterpreting trouble, the danger of misinterpreting disaster, to make the wrong call, to blame the wrong person, to give up on God, the danger of misinterpreting and missing God's act of salvation. There is in this story no pretense that terrible, terrible suffering is not real. The story, as I said at the start, is a horror story. The horror is real and the horror in our world continues to be real. The Bible does not dodge that. The Bible does not pretend that if you walk with God, the horrors will never happen. But what the Bible says is that again and again, in those situations where all hell seems to have broken loose, God again and again comes and all heaven breaks loose and God pours his hope and his power and his presence into those situations, just as he did. 2,000 years ago, when his own son, Jesus Christ, was nailed to the cross, and it seemed as if darkness had triumphed completely, and evil had triumphed completely, and hell reigned completely, and into that situation, God speaks, and God raises his son, and heaven breaks into our world, and God's power breaks into our world again. And it's not so that we avoid the cross, it's not so that we avoid the suffering, it's so that in the suffering and in the darkness, God reveals his glory and his presence. And that is the promise all through the Bible, that in our weakness and in our suffering, God reveals his glory. God's word to us, don't misinterpret trouble. 
and don't misinterpret God's salvation. Let's pray. Father, we do live in a world where even if we're not in a besieged city, Lord, there are many things that we see and we read about and we experience that would make us fearful. There are many things, Father, that make us weep. There may be things that we will hear and see this week that would make us want to pull our hair out and rip our clothes in despair. Father, we pray that you will give us that faith that you gave Elisha, you will give us that faith you gave Habakkuk, that you gave the psalmists, that in the midst of the darkness and the trouble, we would look steadfastly to you, hold on to you, continue to hope in you, and Father, that you will help us when you act in salvation. Lord, give us eyes and give us ears to see it and to give you the glory and to give you the praise. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, for your glory and in your name.